that uh, although we, we do need to recognize that voting someone into political office is not going to do anything to change anyone's heart, and it's only by heart change that this country is going to change. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we, do, we are called by Jesus to be salt of the earth, and I believe that we need to, because of that command and a number of others, we need to p- take part in the, in the voting process. And I also think that we're, we're not only accountable to God to vote, but how we vote. We are accountable on how we vote. The Bible has a lot to say about righteousness. The Bible says that the, the, righteous, the righteousness of God will exalt a nation. And so we need to be thinking about these things. Uh, even as uh, this Tuesday comes and we cast our vote. And so... Uh, let's remember that. We are going to be this morning continuing our study in 2 Corinthians. Please rise. 2 Corinthians, as we read uh, God's Word, we're in chapter 13. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? A couple Bibles there? 2 Corinthians. Did I say chapter 13? Chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting, you have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most imminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your soul's Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Let's pray. Father, I just pray this morning that each and every one of us, Lord, will leave this room this morning recognizing how much you love us, Lord. Oh, Father, how we have that need, Lord. We're weak. We need to know your love the abundance of your grace, your mercies, your tender mercies and loving kindnesses, Lord. Please do that work in our heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So listening to Lauren talk about those uh, Hindu extremists and militants reminded me also of the Islamic extremists. You know, uh, it was just six or seven weeks ago on September 11th that... Uh, The country reflected on the tragedy that happened seven years ago uh, in 2001 when uh, Islamic militants uh, hijacked four planes. Two of them were run into the World Trade Center. Uh, Another one was rammed into the Pentagon. And then there was a third, uh, probably headed for the Capitol building, maybe the White House. It uh, actually was taken down in Pennsylvania. It went down because of 
uh, the bravery of the men and women on that flight. It was a united flight. Uh, they discovered what was going on. Then, after reciting Psalm 23, some of them charged the cabin and basically took the plane down. And the wife of one of the men who uh, charged the cabin was, wrote a book. It's called Let's Roll. I recommend it to you, Let's Roll. Pastor Scott uh, gave it to me. He, uh, he slips me these books and says, you know, you better read this. And so I read it. And uh, one of the things that, that the book talked about was the hijackers' belongings that were found in the wreckage. Really fascinating stuff. Among other things, they found some papers which were written by the Islamic militants and uh, who were mentoring these four hijackers. And I guess that is well known that before someone does the whole suicide bomb thing, they are actually very closely mentored uh, for a, a, a sometimes quite a long time period before, right up until it happens, and they just fill their minds uh, with all kinds of... Uh, spiritual stuff, which they believe is from, from Allah, and if you read this thing, um, it was these papers that were found. What were in these papers were instructions by their Islamic mentor of the prayers they were supposed to recite before and right up to the time they were killed, the prayers that they were supposed to recite. And what is so amazing about these prayers is that they, these hijackers were instructed to repeatedly cry out to Allah for forgiveness over and over again, begging right up to the very end for forgiveness. Now, this is amazing to me because these four men in this plane were just about to do the most ultimate act of sacrifice that their religion called for. They were about to do the most righteous, mighty deed that their God delighted in. Uh, they were uh, in the name of their God, and uh, in their religious world and system, there was no greater sacrifice, no greater act of righteousness that a, that a man or woman could do. There was no better way to delight their God than do what they did, and yet, to the very end, they were screaming out, pleading out for forgiveness. That's what they were instructed to do. And really, it is the same cry, that cry for forgiveness, that millions of people living in this world cry out today. They, they may be spending, uh, and along with that, they may be spending a lot of time trying to do some religious thing, a lot of their time and money and effort on doing some religious thing. For some, it's ramming an airplane into a building. For others, it's taking a pilgrimage. For others, it's going to church every Sunday whatever, but at the same time, they're crying out to forgiveness. They think that doing their religious thing is going to get them a little closer to God, uh, but they always find themselves thinking they're so far off still, so they keep crying out for forgiveness. Well, this is the same cry that was in Corinth, in Corinth, before the Apostle Paul showed up in 50 AD. The city had sunk so low it was, in some ways, it was a first century version of Sodom. It was known throughout the Roman world as a, 
a place where there was open and shameless sexual immorality. Even the Romans, never known for their own moral standards, keeping them, used to warn each other about going to Corinth. And that was because even unbelievers who know nothing of God, uh, they know something about the danger of sin. They know something about the danger of sin, that how it can ravage a man or a woman's life, how it strips the soul bare, sin by sin, it strips the soul, it strips it down, how it chews you up and it spits you out. And when the Apostle Paul went into Corinth around 50 AD, it was a city into a city with men, with women who had ravaged hearts who had souls that had been stripped bare. And they were crying out to God, a God, any God, there were many of them, for forgiveness. And no one was listening except for one God, the one true living God. He heard their cries. Fascinating verse in Acts chapter 16 where Paul was given a vision. He was trying to go to one place to declare the word of God, but he was given a vision of a man from Macedonia, or this place in Macedonia, which is right just north of Corinth. And in this vision, a man was crying out to Paul to come and help. And he was not crying out for money or for food or because he was you know, about to be tortured by his enemies. He was crying out for grace. And that's the cry of millions of, pe- uh, of people throughout the world. And it could be the cry of some of you uh, this morning. He was crying out for grace. And that's what every man and woman, woman needs so desperately. They need the grace of God. And so Paul went into Corinth and when he got there, God told him, I have many in this city. It's chapter 18 of Acts. You can read that. I have many in this city who are crying out for grace. See, God is faithful to respond to those crying out. If you, anyone ever ask you, well, what about the person in the middle of the jungle who's never heard about uh, Christ? The Bible teaches if they cry out for grace, someone will be sent to them. And that's why Jesus said, go into all nations. And so that's why... Um, the, Pastor Bob is in, and Lauren are in India, and that's why um, we are told to send out. So Paul went into Corinth, and he declared. He declared, I have good news for you. There is one God, and this one God who made heaven and earth sent his son into the world, his son Jesus Christ. And just as the prophets foretold, this Jesus made the lame walk, he gave sight to the blind, he gave hearing to lepers, he uh, gave hearing to the deaf, he raised the dead, and he declared salvation for anyone who had ears to hear. And, and he, 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 he declared this, that salvation that God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his, this Jesus Christ the, to the world, the, this, the sin of which uh, your whole life, you, you've been crying out for this forgiveness. This, this, your sin, the sins that you've been crying out to, for something to forgive, they were laid on him. 
And God punished him for your sin. The punishment was death. He died on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And now God has sent me to tell you that if you believe in him, you will pass from death to life. And that sin that also weighs you down, he will remove it more than that. He promises he will remember it no more. The soul of yours that has been stripped bare, he will fill it for, with love. Uh, he, he, the heart which, your heart which has been ravaged, he will restore it. And you can stop pleading, begging for the rest of your life for forgiveness because you can be forgiven. Now, if you embrace this Jesus... And so the Corinthians had never heard anything like this, and by the grace of God, many believed. They were filled with joy. God began His mighty work of grace in their life, and a love feast began that went on and on. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never invited God to do that same work of grace in your life, please do not leave this morning until you do just that. You invite him into your life to do that work of grace. Well, Paul stayed in Corinth two or three years teaching them the grace of God, and then he left to Ephesus to begin a work there. So what happened in Corinth after he left? What happened um, in Corinth? Well, someone came to disrupt the love feast. Last Sunday night, we finished up the book of Nehemiah, which was about the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem to allow worship in the temple to flourish. They were so scared of their enemies around Jerusalem, without walls they were just left uh, open to attack. They built up walls around Jerusalem and worship was allowed to flourish. And we read about this incredible worship party they had. I mean, it was incredible. It was wonderful to read about. And, uh, uh, and, but as soon as, what did we see last Sunday night? As soon as they did so, they had this worship party, the walls were rebuilt. What happened? Well, some men weaseled their way back in through the walls and began to disrupt the love feast, the worship party. As you read through the Gospels, that's why Jesus often says, pray and watch. Pray and watch. He says this to his disciples. Pray and watch. Why? To guard against that very thing happening in your own life. Because when you have a victory in your life, whether it's at the time you were saved or at any time after, Satan's going to be coming right in to disrupt your love feast. You were made, you were born again into God's kingdom to have a love feast with God. That's what it's all about. And that's why the news is so good. We read this morning about India, millions upon hundreds of millions of, of untouchables. That's the lowest caste of India. Know nothing about hope, know nothing about forgiveness, know nothing about love. And that's why the news is so good for them. They're being called into a love feast, but Satan wants to disrupt it. Uh, Jesus very very, so very, warns us so very clearly about that. Watch and pray. And so that's what happened in Corinth. Paul left. Certain religious men came in, and they began to disrupt the, uh, 
disrupt that love feast. They began to attack Paul. You know, Paul told you, they said, that all you need for a relationship with God is faith in Jesus. He was wrong. Yes, you need Jesus, but let me tell you what you also need. And they came up with this long list of religious rules. And as soon as you come in with that list into any group of believers, the attention will be drawn off Jesus and onto the list, and the love feast will die. That's why we need to watch and pray. But that's exactly what did uh, happen in Corinth. And so all it took were a few carnal religious people riling up a few other carnal people in the name of religion, and, and division came in. And that's what these men uh, did who came in after Paul. They called themselves super apostles. Um, Actually, as we've discussed in the past, uh, the word there at the end of verse 11, most eminent apostles, uh, the NIV translates it super apostles. They went around calling themselves, well, we're super apostles. And, you know, who is Paul? He's just an apostle. We're super apostles, and, and um, they boasted about their educational degree, de, uh, uh, degrees. They, uh, they boasted about the people that they knew, the miracles they had done. And some of the, the weaker believers in Corinth, the more carnal Christians, were won over, and they sent a message to Paul in Ephesus, and they said, Hey, Paul, uh, there's, there are men here, religious men, They look like they're real important men, and they have a real impressive resume. And, you know, come to think of it, you never showed us your resume. What's your resume, Paul? And so in chapters 10, 11, and 12, Paul responds to this, and he lists, he says, look, I don't want to do this, but if you're so weak and carnal that you're insisting upon it, I'll do it. And it really interesting, instead of spending time on all the miracles that he had done, and there were many, there were many miracles, just look in the book of, uh, of, of, of Acts, there were many miracles that Paul uh, did, uh, he, he lists off actually his sufferings, his sufferings with them. It says in, uh, in chapter 11, right in the middle of his defense, in uh, verse 23, in labors, I've been more abundant in stripes. A stripe was a, a whip, a, a, um, a stripe was a beating from a whip that went below the surface of the skin. It says, in stripes more uh, above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I, was, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I uh, have been in the deep, meaning in the middle of the ocean. And so you see um, a man or woman, what he's trying to get ac- across here to the Corinthians, what he was trying to get across was a man and woman or a woman who is not a servant of Christ, who is just coming into church and they have some motive for something else other than the worship of God, they will take off as soon as the suffering comes. And then there's, there's always a test of suffering in our life, and that's sort of what we were in the last three weeks when we were talking about the thorn. There will always be a, 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 a test of suffering in our lives, but we're called to persevere. 
And in that perseverance is when we really uh, learn the, the love of God. But someone who's not a servant of Christ will take off as soon as things get tough. And so um, Paul goes over his sufferings. Now at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul did share with them a revelation that he had received. These people had been boasting about things and visions they had seen. And he does, be, he does share with them in chapter 12 a revelation that he had received. But then... As soon as he brings it up, he returns right back to his suffering, talks about the, the thorn in his flesh, and, and he just uses his suffering as, a, as an excuse to talk about what again? The grace of God upon which the church was started. He says in verse 9, and he said to me, that is, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That's one of those verses that I recommend to all of you. Uh, type it out or write it out. Cut it out of a piece of paper, put it on your doorpost. My grace is sufficient for you. And so, a servant of Christ, uh, a, a servant of Christ, uh, or a person actually, remember Paul is making a contrast between a servant of the Lord, a servant of Christ, and someone who's not, because these people who had, had been attacking him, he, he's just proving his case that they were not servants of Christ. And by bringing up grace yet, ag- yet again, he's just, he's just trying to get across the point that someone who's not a servant of Christ doesn't want to talk about grace. Because a pastor who, does a, a pastor who talks about grace can't control his people. He can't control them in the flesh. Because grace liberates people. It frees them. And so when a pastor or, or, or a teacher or a super apostle, whoever, starts talking about the law, they do so because, among other reasons, they're trying to control them. And I've, I've heard so many stories of, of pastors uh, laying on fear and the law. They're try, trying to control their people, make sure, ooh, they don't go any other place. If I, if I put enough fear on their, in their lives, they'll never leave this church because they, they'll realize that they have to stay at this church and all the law and the rules that are there in order to, to stay with God. And, and, and so they can't, uh, you can't control someone with grace. But what you can do is re- with grace is release someone to the control of God. And that's why we preach grace. And so um, that is what uh, Paul does here. And then he, he picks up in verse 11 as he continues his defense against these people who had, had tried to destroy his reputation, but worse, they, they d- tried to destroy, to besmirch, to take away from the cross. Jesus said when, when he died on the cross, it is finished. All the work that you need for a relationship with God is finished. They tried to add to it, and now they're attacking that message. And Paul, verse 11, Paul says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. You made me do it. <laughs> for I ought to have been commended by you. In other words, you should have... You, You should should be blessing my name. You should be thanking me. For in nothing was I behind behind the most eminent apostles, meaning in no thing did I fall short of what these super apostles say they are. Then he says, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you 
with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul is just saying in verse 12 there, when I was with you, I did perform miracles. And then in verse 13, he says, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you, meaning he didn't take any money from them. He wasn't a burden to, to them. And then he says, with some sanctified uh, uh, sarcasm at the end of the verse, he says, forgive me of this wrong. I didn't take any money from you as they did. Forgive me of this wrong. And, and so uh, here, uh, there, there's this small group of carnal Corinthians who wanted Paul to prove himself. Mostly they wanted to hear about his miracles and revelations because that's what these super apostles had focused on. And, you know, they, they've talked about all these miracles, Paul. What have you done? And so what Paul says in return is, look, I, I, you saw miracles. Jesus, at the end of the book of Mark, says that if, if someone's a real apostle or a, a servant of Christ, or someone that I send out, that miracles and signs and wonders will follow. And he says right there in verse 12, Paul does. Wait, wait a second. You saw the miracles. But yet he doesn't want to defend himself like that. Instead, he calls attention to other things, things that really make a man of God. And that's why he says at the end of verse 11, though I am nothing. So he says, for in nothing was I behind the most imminent apostles, though I am nothing. The more a man or woman grows in Christ the more they will come to this place. I am nothing in their heart. John the Baptist said what? He said, he, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. And that is what the real mark of a maturing believer is. I am nothing. And so Paul is just, this is how Paul gives his defense here. And then in, in verse 14, he continues. He says, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. In other words, what he's saying is, I do not seek something from you, or something that is yours, but I want you. That's what he's saying. And this is the heart of a servant of Christ towards other people. It's so radically different than anything you'll see anywhere else in the world. Paul was simply loving them here the way that Jesus loves them. The way that Jesus loves you. Paul himself, he said, I'm nothing, but the Lord has placed his, uh, his love, his holy love. He says, uh, uh, Paul also says in, the, in, in another letter that he has shed abroad, that God has shed abroad his love in my heart. He's simply loving them the way that God loves them with the holy, abundant, everlasting love that God has put uh, in his heart. For I do not seek yours, something from you, but I seek you. That is how God loves you. That's how God loves you. He doesn't want things from you. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your relationships. He doesn't want your time. He doesn't want your career. He doesn't want your possessions. He wants you. 
what differentiates, Lauren talked about a million gods in the Hindu religion. There are, <laughs> amazingly. None of them talk about hope. It's all about what these gods want from the people to take from them. God doesn't want to take anything from us. He wants us. He doesn't want our things. He wants us. You know, this was illustrated so well. I was talking with a Calvary Chapel pastor a couple weeks ago, a pastor from New York, and he had told the story. He was in a Christian shelter in Washington, D.C., and when he was there, a, uh, a man and woman came in, and the woman was pregnant, and they were not married. Her boyfriend w- was with her there. They came into the shelter. She already had a couple uh, kids, and they just began to, to minister to them, didn't judge them, just loved them, just like God loves us, accepted them right where they were at, didn't preach at them. And over time, they got the opportunity to, to share Jesus with them. And the woman, who was pregnant, gave her life to Jesus. Her boyfriend, he didn't. And he started getting more and more uncomfortable, and she started growing with the Lord and reading the Bible and uh, really annoying her, her boyfriend. <laughs> so he took off. I think, I think his name was Bob. Let's just call him Bob. Bob took off. And so the pastor, Pastor Rick, uh, was there and witnessing all this. And um, a few months later, he took off from Washington, D.C., back to where he lived in Oregon. And he was driving in Oregon, and all of a sudden, there's this guy hitchhiking on the side of the road. It was Bob. And he was like, ho, 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 this is good. <laughs> and so uh, he drives up alongside of this guy, and, it, and uh, the guy opens the door, and I don't know how many of how many of you who have been hitchhiking actually hitchhiked on our honeymoon? Hey, you are poor and in love, uh, go for it. I highly recommend it. Just do it in a place that's legal. Stephanie and I went to Ireland, but, and we hitchhiked around. It was a wonderful thing. But any of you who has ever been, anyone been hitchhiking? Some of you older people? I know, I know some of you. Uh, you know, it's like you'd do anything for a ride. I mean, after a while, I mean, the, the things that you will, you know, I have one friend who actually got down his knees and started begging because it had been a few hours. That's what you get like. So this guy, um, this guy who had been hitchhiking, Bob, uh, the car stops, and, and just that sense of relief that comes over you when you get a ride. And he, and he's, uh, uh, you know, he gets into the car, and he, ah, uh, and, 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 Bob, and, uh, and Rick goes, hi, Bob. And he looks over, and he went from, ah, uh, to, ah, uh, you know, <laughs> what is going on here? And, and he, he starts uh, driving away, and he goes, so, um, How's your walk with the Lord, Bob? And he goes, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, it was such a great story to me about God's love for, for us because God will, I'm telling you, you cannot get away from the Lord. And, and I love that psalm where David says, you can go to heaven, you can go to hell, you can go to the, fly with wings to the east and west, God's going to follow you there because he loves you. Now, I have no doubt in my mind why this guy, Bob, was 
didn't want to have anything to do with the Lord. It's what most people, it's that fear that God was going to take something from him. That God was going to just take something from him. He, he feared the things that God wanted to take from him when actually God didn't want his things. God wanted him. And Paul, when, when he's speaking to these, when he's speaking to these um, Corinthians, he says, look, I, I, I have the love of God in my heart. I, I'm not seeking something from you. I'm, I'm seeking you, he says there in verse 14. And how about us? You know, do we love God? I hear a lot of people talking about the love of, uh, of God. You know, you just turn, turn this thing on its head. God's love towards us, that's the way uh, it looks. Well, it, 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 our love towards the Lord is supposed to be the same way. And, 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 you know, I hear a lot of people say they love God, but what really does that mean? What really does it mean? And I have a question for each of you this morning. Do you love God? We're going to go a little later in this chapter at it said, Paul's going to say, let a man examine himself. You need to examine yourself. I want every one of us to, to ask ourselves this morning, do I love God? Do you love God? Is your relationship with God defined by things you want from him? Or to use the language of Paul in verse 14, when you seek God, are you seeking something from him or, or are you seeking him? When you go to Jesus, are you seeking something from Jesus or are you seeking Jesus? What do you want? Do you want something from Jesus or you, do, you, do you just want Jesus? How about the people God has placed in, in your life? Think about your friendships. Think about your husband. Think about your wife. What is it that you really want from them, from that relationship? Is it something or is it them? Ouch, that's just so convicting to my own heart. And that's what I love about the Christian life. It's just so impossible. It can't possibly be lived except by the power of God. Again, verse 9 at the end, it says, or end of verse 10, it says, For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul is comparing himself to these false servants of Christ supremely. What's the difference? He seeks not something from them, verse 14, but he seeks them. Then he continues in verse 14. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. I thought maybe I should dismiss my kids before I recited that verse this morning, but no, I better not do that. But anyway, uh, for the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for their children. So this is really where it gets heavy. You know, I remember when our firstborn, Sam, was born. And 
My wife has this thing about childbearing. She doesn't want any of that pain medication stuff. You know, she's just one of those, I don't know, is this like a tree hugger type of thing? You don't like pain medication at childbirth? And, and you know, she wasn't, she just, with, with none of our kids did she want that. Two of them came so fast, she didn't even have the opportunity to have it happen. But anyway, uh, with three of them, uh, she was offered the opportunity. She said, no, 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 no. And, and I remember our firstborn just having to witness this. And I have to be careful because she gets a little embarrassed when I talk about these things. But I remember, you know, sitting there. So I'm 29 years old. This is my first child. And this, my child is, you know, coming down the womb. And I mean the pain that she was going through. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I did not know pain like this existed. I mean, I had a newfound respect for women at this point. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, and you know, okay, this is really going to get embarrassing. You know what I started thinking of? My mother. Now, what a horrible thing. My wife is in all this terrible pain. I'm thinking of my mom. But I started thinking about all my mother went through. 29 years old. It took 29 years. And, but I'm thinking, wow, just the things that my mother went through. Raising me as just a, a, ba- a young baby, and it just all of a sudden this, it started coming I- into my into my mind here, and this very concept here, uh, Paul is talking about when he says, "For the children not to, not to lay up for the parents, uh, but for but the parents for the children." You know, you raise kids, and and, and they're such a delight and blessing, but guess what? Sometimes they go through these seasons, you know, these irrational seasons of their life where they don't think quite the same thing about you. You know, Mark Twain said, when I was 14 years old, I thought my dad was the most ignorant person on the face of the earth. By the time I was 24, I couldn't believe how much the old man had learned in 10 years. I mean, you know, that's what kids are like when they're about that age, you know, and, and, and they have these attitudes. It doesn't matter. You're a parent, and you keep pressing on no matter what. Paul says, again, verse 14, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents. Now, remember, these Corinthians are his spiritual children, but the parents for the children. And I will very glad, verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. You know, I was, I'm in Luke chapter 15 in my devotion time, and the story of the prodigal son, there can be no better illustration of this very thing between a parent and the child, illustrating the love of God uh, towards us, but also illustrating how, uh, how God's love needs to be reflected through us into other people's life. Just not going to go through a whole lesson on the, uh, on the, uh, the parable of the, uh, <clears throat> the prodigal son, but if you remember, the one son, the younger son, asked for his inheritance before his uh, father died. His, uh, and by the way, that is exactly what happens when you give your life to Christ. He gives the entire inheritance now. But in that parable, the entire inheritance was given to um, 
was given to uh, the son. He goes uh, off, and um, it's it's interesting. His older brother described what he is what he had done. He had devoured devoured the inheritance with harlots, and and that's what we do with our with sin in our lives. We devour the inheritance of God. Uh, but anyway, uh, as many of you are, remember the story, he devours everything. He's way far off, and he's looking at pig's food, thinking, wow, uh, how I would like even what they're eating right now. And then it says, he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? I'm just going to go back and just become a servant. I'm just going to go back and spend uh, and just become a servant. In other words, best case scenario will be, you know, my dad will want something from me. He'll let me back and he'll just want something from me. And little did he know the truth. God didn't want anything from him. He wanted him. And one of the most glorious Verses in the whole Bible, Luke, actually it's 15, uh, uh, verse uh, 20, it says, as he made his way home, it says, and came to his father uh, when he was still a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion. He ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. He didn't want anything from his son. He He wasn't seeking things from his son. He wanted his son And that's how God loves you. If you're fearing this morning coming to the Lord, it's not he's, quit fearing about things he wants to take from you. He doesn't want things. He wants you. And so Paul, it, there's this description of what a real servant of Christ is. He's just describing the love of God and, and, and this comparison between uh, you know, uh, someone who serves Christ out of the right motive and, and these other men who had served him from the wrong motives and, and he's comparing it to um, just a parent. And he, these were spiritual children and this is how a parent is. I heard this other story about a teenage boy who left a, a bill for his mother on the breakfast table when he went off to school and the bill said this, mowing the lawn, $2, uh, drying dishes, $1, uh, raking leaves, $3, cleaning the garage, $4, total $10, love, your son. And so when the mom read it, and she put it, she just read it and put it down and went about doing her things, but, uh, you know, when this kid got back, there was a bill waiting for him. It said, ironing clothes, $0. Mending socks, zero dollars. Bandaging cuts, zero dollars. And you can add uh, 1,325 diaper changes, zero dollars. 10,000 cooked meals, zero dollars. Love, mother. And, and so Paul says, though, abund- though I love you all the more abundantly, the less you love me. And, and that's the wonderful story, by the way, of the prodigal son. You get this picture of this guy. He, he, he doesn't really even love his father that much anymore because his heart had been, uh, been so hardened. And it does take a while before you get back into the body of Christ and you, and you recognize how much God loves you. But he's sitting there, you know, not really loving his father, and his father's embracing him. A 
fell upon his neck and, 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 and was kissing him. And so um, th- this is the kind of love that marks a real uh, servant of the Lord. And, and I just want to skip down to verse 19. It says, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do it all, all things, beloved, for your edification, for your building up, for your building up. What separates me from being just another phony Christian? What separates you from being just another uh, phony Christian? What you do, what you say, is for the building up of those around you, your husband, your wife, your children, your co-worker. It's for the... Le- Jesus said you will be judged for every careless word. That's, that's a convicting thing. Thank God for his blood that covers all the things that I've said that are not careless. But the things we say are for uh, the building up of the people around us. And then he says in verse 24, I fear lest when I come I shall not find you uh, such as I wish and that I shall uh, be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. So some of them had left the grace of God, and if you ever wonder where your life will lead you uh, after you leave the the grace of God, uh, look no further than verse 20. Paul knew that he he would find some of them uh, in this way because this is always the place you will go back to when you leave the grace of God. When I start thinking I'm something, that there's anything good in me, that's, or there's some good in me that's my doing, and it's not the God's doing, it's not the, the, the completed work of Christ in me, any time I start drifting away into that kind of carnal thinking, this is where I go, verse 20. Uh, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whispering, conceits, tumults. And then in verse 21 he says, lest when I come again, so he's talking about how the fact he's going to come back to Corinth in the flesh, he's going to go to the church and he's going to visit them. He says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, the fornication, and the lewdness which they have practiced. This will be the third time I am coming to you, verse 1 of chapter 13. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, verse 2. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, if I come to you again, I love you enough to convict you. Uh, rather, not to convict you, but to, but to confront you of any sin that you're in. So in verse 21, he's there talking about sexual morality. Remember, that's what uh, characterized a life in Corinth was sexual immorality. That is, any sex outside the marriage of a man and woman is sin. And Paul is uh, saying here, look, I'm not going to make the mistakes that many parents do for their, with their own kids. That you're so worried about uh, your kids liking you and your kids being your friend. Uh, and this is how these super apostles were. They, were so, they so much wanted the approval of the people but they didn't love them enough to confront them. And he's saying, look, I'm going to come back, and, 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 and I, I just want you to know I love you enough to tell you that you're wrong, and, and I'll confront you for that. 
is what he's saying. And, and that too is, is what real love is. It's being able in the face of, of, of you know, that, that fear of being rejected by the very one you love, you proceed anyway and you tell the truth in love. And then he goes on in verse 3, uh, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you. So I am going to stop there with that, those verses there where Paul says, let a man examine himself. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now and we're going to have communion now. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says the same thing when he's talking about preparing for communion. He said, examine yourself. Examine yourself before you take this cup, before you take this bread. And Paul is saying here, says, let a man examine himself as to whether you are in the faith. And I'd like to give everybody an opportunity to do that. He defines here what it means to be in the faith. He says there at the end of verse 5, it's someone who has Jesus Christ in them. Someone who has Jesus Christ in them. And I want you to really ask yourself this morning, have I ever come to, my, to the place in my life where I have gotten off the throne of my life and allowed Jesus to take seat on the throne? Have I ever done that in my life? And, and you know... It's so easy to think sometimes that we spend life in church, going to church, and we think that because we're in church, that somehow that makes us a Christian. But that doesn't make us a Christian any more than me sleeping in a garage makes me a car. In fact, that's what many people do. They, they go with this religious thing, this religious ri uh, ritual, and they're in church and they're sleeping. They've never been made alive by the Spirit of God. The Bible says that unless a man is born again by the Spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus started the first communion, the Lord's Supper on the night that he was betrayed, he did it for Christians. And so if you have never in your life given your life to Christ, ask them in your heart. This says, let a man examine himself, and it goes on to say, if, you know, Jesus Christ lives in you if you're a Christian. If you've never done that, if you've never asked Jesus in your life, while we're having communion, and the worship uh, team here, Albert and Richard Plain, come up and, and pray with me. Actually, if I can ask now everyone who's been uh, asked to pray, if they could uh, come up right now, we're going to have uh, several couples here uh, praying. Come up and, and, and pray with them and, and put a stake in the ground this morning that you're not relying, that you're not going to rely uh, when you die and go to heaven. You're not going to rely on uh, your own good works. 
to get into heaven. You're going to rely on Christ in you. It's a simple prayer of faith, asking Jesus in your life. Or, if you just, before communion, you want to pray with a brother or sister. You've been holding on to something in your life, some sin, some habit that's not glorifying to the Lord, something that uh, you really, some spirit of unforgiveness or bitterness towards another believer or really anyone in your family, anything that you, uh, you, you want to uh, just pray with a brother or sister, I invite you to come up now, you know, uh, and this isn't to, to lay a guilt trip on anyone, exactly the opposite. What we don't want to do when we take communion is, the Bible says, trample on the blood of Jesus or on the cross. When, when Jesus died and his blood was poured out for us, we can have salvation. His blood covers all our sin. But when we, when we ask Jesus in our life and then we go out and we take advantage of that grace and by, by sinning or getting involved in something or someone we have no business getting involved in, the Bible says we're trampling on the blood of Christ. We shouldn't take communion when we're laying hold of some sin like that in our life. Well, this is an opportunity this morning um, to just to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to release anything uh, that may be in your life over to the Lord. And then everyone else at the time that you would, anytime you'd like, while Albert and Rich are playing, just, uh, there's uh, communion tables uh, right here. I believe there's four of them. Just at any time they're playing, just uh, go right up to them uh, and take the uh, grape juice, take the cracker, and we'll have communion together. Okay.